Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Hey guys, welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 52. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, I sit down with longtime Chicago radio voice Chuck Shaden for an in-depth conversation about Chuck's life and career. Chuck's earliest radio memory was on the Sunday, December 7, 1941, listening to The Shadow when the broadcast was interrupted with news of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and Manila in the Philippines. It's these kinds of memories that have stayed with Chuck through the years, I think partly because... Radio gets the listener to use his imagination to paint the picture of what he or she is being told better than any other medium. I'll speak with Chuck about how he got on the air in 1970, his conversations through the years with golden age of radio actors and actresses like Jack Benny, Howard Duff, Arch Obler, and Alan Reed. I asked Chuck why he feels the American radio drama died in the 1950s as television grew, and I found his answer to not only be accurate and interesting, but I think perhaps hints at a path for a coming radio revival, which we also spoke about when I asked Chuck about his current podcast, Chuck Shaden's Memory Lane, and where Chuck thinks radio drama is heading in the 21st century world of downloaded transcribed audio. Before we get into the body of the podcast, if this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls, thank you, and if you want to find out more about what The Wallbreakers is, you can do so at thewallbreakers.com. We're also on all social media outlets at The Wallbreakers. This podcast is available on iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls and on SoundCloud by going to soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers. You can also listen on our website through the embedded player in the handy right-hand rail. I recently launched a t-shirt line in honor of the five boroughs of New York City as a way to help inspire unity amongst all New Yorkers, and they're doing very well. I'm proud of the feedback that I've been getting from both strangers and friends alike. And if you want to check these tees out, please go to jamesthewallbreaker.com slash shop. That's my personal website. I'm funneling the t-shirts through there because it uses Squarespace, and it's got an e-commerce platform already set up. There are currently two designs in either black or white. If you've heard some of the first 51 episodes of Breaking Walls, you already know I grew up listening regularly to the golden age of radio. It's because of people like Chuck Shaden that this medium has been preserved. Are you a fan of Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, uh, Billy Crystal, Woody Allen, go back and listen to some of the Jack Benny program and hear who influenced them. If you like a gritty western like Netflix's Longmire, go listen to some of the episodes of Gunsmoke, the radio version of it, and you can hear the very influence that these writers have been picked up on from Gunsmoke. Star Trek took cues from radio shows like NBC's X-1, and I'll still never be as creeped out watching anything in a horror or thriller genre as I was the first time I listened to Suspense's on a Country Road, which guest starred Cary Grant, or The House in Cypress Canyon, which guest starred Robert Taylor. Two of the most spine-tingling, chilling things that you can ever listen to. And incidentally, both of those episodes co-starred radio actress Kathy Lewis, and Chuck interviewed her once-husband, Elliot Lewis, on the Paramount lot in Hollywood, California. Chuck has had an almost 40-year career on the air. Name an accomplished person from the golden age of radio, chances are Chuck once sat down for a conversation with them. If you want to hear some of those conversations, read about Chuck's life, see television pieces that featured Chuck through the years on Chicago television, you can do so at his robust website, speakingofradio.com. 
At this point, I've listened to over 50 conversations that Chuck has had throughout his career, and I learned something important for my own life in each one. Now, in order to get the most complete picture of Chuck's career as we speak to him, we've got to go back to the beginning. We've got to go back to Chuck's first memory on the air. You'll hear that, followed by my conversation with Chuck Shaden, Radio Hall of Fame member, after this brief pause. So stay tuned for Breaking Walls, episode number 52. Adventures of the Shadow are on the air. Brought to you each week at this time by your neighborhood blue coal dealer. These dramatizations are designed to demonstrate forcibly to old and young alike that crime does not pay. On old-time sundials, a favorite motto was this. It's later than you think. Winter has a way of sneaking up on us and striking hard at those who are unprepared. Cold weather all around us will be here any day without notice. Are you prepared? It's later than you think. Safeguard your family by ordering a supply of blue coal right now. You know, blue coal is the finest of Pennsylvania hard coal. It will keep every room in your house at a comfortable, even temperature at all times. Get in touch with your neighborhood blue coal dealer tomorrow. And listen, in a few minutes, I want to tell you about a strange and exotic token, a unique piece of jewelry that blue coal has for you. So listen carefully. The Shadow, mysterious character who aids the forces of law and order, is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Several years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and powerful secret. The secret of hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so that they cannot see him. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. Hey guys, we're back on Breaking Walls today, and my guest is Chuck Shaden. Chuck is a radio player who was on the air in Chicago from 1970 to 2009, first at WLTD until 1975, then WNIB until 2001, and finally at WDCB in suburban Chicago until he retired in June of 2009. He's a member of the 1993 Radio Hall of Fame class, and you're happily retired today, Chuck, living with your wife, Ellen, running speakingofradio.com and your podcast, Memory Lane, of course, the adjoining Facebook group, too. Correct. I am actually very happy, Chuck, because I received in the mail today your transcribed Speaking of Radio Conversations, which is fantastic. I can't wait to sit and read it. I've been able to listen to, at this point, probably about 30 of the full-on conversations that you've had, and uh, that's like the tip of the iceberg. You know, It feels like I could spend <laughs> years catching up with you, basically. But one thing I wanted to ask you immediately is that, as you know, you've basically spent your entire life in or around radio, either as a fan and then eventually transitioning to be a working member of radio. And if I talk to people that are in my age range and I say to them, oh, I grew up listening to the golden age radio or old time radio, they tend to look at me 
very confused. Like they don't realize that there was radio before there was TV. And I was curious, in your opinion, what do you think killed the radio drama? Is it just that advertisers got excited about television? Or in your opinion, because I believe that it could have lasted, you could have had dueling radio and television at the same time. But what do you think was the reason for that? Well, there's a, there's a few reasons, uh, James, for the fact that radio drama has gone by the wayside pretty much. First of all, uh, when television came on the scene, everybody wanted to be involved with television. The people out there in radio land were excited to look at television, and they thought they were going to be able to see all these people they had seen in their imaginations on radio. And when they, some of those folks got to television, they were a little disappointed because they didn't really look too much like the way they thought they were going to look. And in many cases, they didn't sound the same because they were different actors. But primarily, the sponsors wanted to move to television because of its ever-growing audience and the ability to show the product. Uh, and uh, the networks, which moved from radio into television, uh, found that it was very expensive to do that. So they were draining the resources from radio to support their entrance into television. And as the audience was shifting, the numbers of people listening to radio were going down and the numbers of people watching television were, were moving forward. And the, uh, the owners of the television slash radio networks felt it was much easier we had it. We weren't going to let go of radio, they said, but they weren't going to pay for all the production that was involved with uh, live comedy shows with big talent, dramatic programs and all of that sort of thing. And so they said, we can get away a lot cheaper by having a four-hour block of some guy playing records. And consequently, eventually, the radio dramas and the original comedies and all of that left the radio waves and were replaced on on television. And that's basically what killed it. And I feel that those of us who were there during that period of transition, we, in effect, let radio down because we were as fascinating with the, with the television just as much as people were fascinated with radio when it came in on the scene. And they previously had been listening to recordings and had a piano in their living room, which they didn't use anymore. You mentioned in the forward of your book and also at the beginning of speakingradio.com how you were listening on the air when Pearl Harbor, when the news broke, and you go into different memories of shows that you watched with your father, your mother, your whole family, your brother. Was that the inception of years later, what truly shaped your love of radio? Was it those moments with your family? Is that really what caused the love of radio? Is it somehow the shared connection? Do you think that's what it was? Well, I don't, I don't know for sure about that. I, I think uh, certainly our family listened together. To radio. I mean, there were so many programs on radio that appealed to everybody in the family that we could we could sit there in our living room and uh, listen to the same program, and maybe we would each see different pictures <laughs> because it came out of our imagination. Right. But uh, but the the thing about radio for me was that it was entertainment that I loved. I loved making those pictures in my imagination, though I really wasn't very conscious about doing that. I mean, as far as that kind of entertainment was concerned, I only had radio and the movies. And uh, the movies, really, I love the pictures. I love the movies and the movie stars. And that they, a lot of them were very evident on radio and such programs like the Lux Radio Theater and so forth. But uh, 
but the ability to use one's imagination as you listen to radio was the big draw and the big appeal to it. Once television came in on the scene, we were watching what someone others, somebody else's imagination was. And that was fine, but it wasn't the opportunity to use their own imaginations anymore. And uh, But radio has always been a fascination for me when I'm from being a little kid. I mean, I say that I remember listening to The Shadow as it was interrupted from Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. I know I listened to other radio programs before that, but I wasn't really uh, totally conscious of the fact that I was doing that up to that time. Sure. Uh, because I, as, as a little kid, I was listening to all kinds of radio programs. I, I got, uh, got out of bed in the morning and turned on the radio, and there's some guy telling us, come on, kids, get ready for breakfast, because cream of wheat is going to be up here, or malt of meal mm-hmm. is going to be ready for you, and I can see what you're doing. You better clean up your room, and you let your socks on the floor, because I'm looking at you through the, the little green eye of the radio, and boy, I believed it. <laughs> but... Uh, Radio was always a part of my life, and, I, and now I, <laughs> I grew up in the radio generation, and then I relived it a couple of more times <laughs> with all the stuff that I've been doing on the air over the years. Are you the kind of person who looks back at your whole career, and uh, you've done, a, it's, it's because of people like you, honestly, Chuck, that I grew up listening to radio. Had it truly died, then no one would have saved it. You were tape trading and tape collecting in the 1960s and into the 70s. and Are you looking back now at your career and, and do you realize that you've played a tremendous role in saving these programs or do you just look at it like it's just something that I loved and so I, I gravitated towards it all these years and hope that other people would feel the same way? I was uh, very, very lucky that I, first of all, I could share my love of the radio programs. That's what I wanted to do is I found sources to find some of these programs on, and recordings on tape and so forth. I, uh, I was glad to have them and, and say, gee, now I can listen to these things again if I want. But the joy came when I was sharing these programs. And I, every chance I get, I'd make a copy for somebody or I'd have people over to the house and say, come and listen to these programs and things like that. But I guess I felt a need for a greater audience, not for me so much, but for those programs because the audience wasn't really there anymore for those programs. Mm-hmm. And people who loved them and grew up with them, as I did, most of them didn't do much to try to find them anymore. They figured they were gone, and that was it. So then I uh, I found a spot on a radio station that was willing to let me play programs for a few hours a week, and uh, that was the beginning of it all. I found that if I was interested in the programs enough to want to do more than just hear them by getting some background about the performers, looking into the uh, the history of whatever program I could find in the beginning. Believe me, in the beginning, there was not much documentation about radio. There were some scholarly things about the history of radio, and a lot of it was technical as opposed to from a programming point of view. But then I felt what I really want to know is how these things were put together, how they were actually produced by the people who produced them, the the performers, the writers, the directors, the the producers themselves, all of those people. And so I was fortunate enough to start getting some of these interviews. And I figured if I was interested, then anybody who was listening to my programs might be interested. And I figured correctly, uh, they were. Uh, In the beginning, people didn't know what they wanted. I asked, tell me what you'd like to hear. 
in and somebody said the Bickersons, you know, someone said mm-hmm. who's on first with Abbott and Costello. But they didn't have they didn't have the the general recollection. So I said, Well, I'm not gonna wait for someone to to suggest that we play a thin man broadcast or some other show. I'll put on the things that I've got and that I like myself. And I found that the audience was very receptive and they loved the stuff. They loved it to such a degree that they supported the sponsors that I had. They they subscribed to the magazine that I had. Mm-hmm. They when we were we were offering uh, the sale of certain programs, uh, they were purchasing them, and so it it grew from that point on. And uh, I always wanted to be on the radio. And uh, when I was a kid. I just said, boy, there'd be nothing better than to be a radio announcer. <laughs> but I didn't have that radio <laughs> announcer's voice. So I figured that's out. But what I did have ultimately was a collection of programs and the enthusiasm uh, that I had. I had the ability to convey that, my enthusiasm for the programs. Mm-hmm. And it caught on with the, with the listening audience that I had. Never had an audience like Arthur Godfrey, but I had my own little audience. Sure. And we carved a nice little spot for us in the, in the metropolitan Chicago area and, and beyond in many cases, too. Well, you're mentioning about the collection of radio shows that you had. How did you go about in the late 1960s beginning to collect these shows? Because, you know, today it's a digital age. So I would guess, and I think you would agree, that because of the digital age, it's actually helped save a lot of new radio programs in the right. 1960s. How did you go about finding these programs? Well, it's very difficult to describe specifically, but I, I, I don't know how it happens. But I, because you have an interest in a certain thing, you somehow meet other people who have that interest. And so I, in, a, in a slow-moving process, I found out that this guy in New York and another guy in California and someone over there in the Hawaiian Islands was making had a little collection of some radio shows here and there. Unlike stamp collecting, if you wanted a stamp that this guy had, you had to give up some stamps that you had mm-hmm. in order to get that one from him. But with a radio program, all you had to have was really a, a recording and a duplicator. Mm-hmm. And if you made a good recording, you would still have your recording and he would have a good recording. So I said to one fellow, I'll trade you. I've got a Lone Ranger program if you'll trade me a, a, a Jack Benny show for the Lone Ranger program. Well, it's fine. His collection didn't diminish and neither did mine. In fact, each of our collections grew. And pretty soon I was trading with people all over the country and in other parts of the world. Uh, Canada, England, and so forth. It was killing us in postage, but uh, we were we were we were doing it and building our collections. And each person had their own particular interest. There was one fellow who he wanted. He didn't care about most of the radio programs, but what he wanted was any radio program with Judy Garland on it. So he he wouldn't trade anything. He had a lot of stuff, but he wouldn't trade anything unless you gave him a Judy Garland program. Well, so then you got a bunch of pet collectors looking for Judy Garland programs from other sources, and then you say, well, I know I can get something from this, and so forth and so on. So that's how it, it just grew. It just grew, and it grew. And knew I, at first, I started with a small shelf of, of reel-to-reel tapes, and the next thing I knew, I was putting an addition on my house for it. <laughs> Before you got on the air in 1970, 
now you said you wanted to grow up when you were growing up. You always wanted to be on radio. You wanted to be an announcer, but you weren't in the time between, say, twenty years old and when you got on the air in nineteen seventy. You weren't working in radio. No. How does that work for you? How, how did that? How did you go about finding airtime? Did you just call up stations until somebody gave you a slot? Yeah, I had I had a I had a bunch of these radio shows, and I thought I'd like to share them. So I went to a radio station in Evanston and said on a suburb of Chicago, mm-hmm. small station, 1,000-watt daytimer. And I said, I have a bunch of radio shows, and I'd like to be able to put them on the air and talk about them. Would you like to have a program like this? And I just figured if they want a program like this, they'd just offer me, a, yeah, you can have an hour of time to do something with this. And they said, well, you have to, you can, it's not a bad idea, but, and you can do that, but what you have to do is to produce the show. And I said, no, what exactly does that mean? He says, well, you have to produce the material that you're going to play on the radio, and you have to produce a sponsor to pay for the time, because I'm not giving you the time. He said, you can have an hour, but I'll sell it to you, and then you can do what you would like to do with your programs in that hour time. Because he thought the idea was good. And uh, so then I went uh, looking for a sponsor. Now, at, at that point in my life, I was doing some... Uh, I was working for a community newspaper. I was the editor of a community newspaper in the metropolitan Chicago area. I also had uh, had a couple of uh, personal uh, public relations accounts for which I did some PR work for people. I had a background before I went into the newspaper business. I was in the savings and loan business and banking mm-hmm. for a while. And so I knew some people there. And to cut to the chase, I got a sponsor, uh, a financial institution, who diverted uh, some of their money from billboards to uh, an hour's worth of time on the radio on Saturday afternoons. And uh, I was smart enough to ask for a one-year deal Mm -hmm. because I knew that it would take some time for this to catch on. It started on the 1st of May in 1970, and it was a beautiful spring day, and the baseball games were being played and listened to, and mm-hmm. people were outdoors, and who was listening to some guy on a thousand watt daytimer playing uh, Amos and Andy? But uh, I knew it would have to take some time to catch on, so I got a, I got the bank to sign me up. I gave they give me a check every month, and I would endorse the check and give it to the uh, radio station because all I was charging was for the time that the station was going to charge me because this was a hobby. I just wanted to be able to to share this stuff. After a while, I went to the financial institution and about six months into all of this stuff and I was, it was catching on. It was people were responding to this and getting a little momentum. And I said, do you think that at the end of this year, you would want to continue beyond this? Because I figured I may, if they're not going to do this, I'm going to have to take some time to find other sponsors to do something for this. And they told me what I just said. They Well, we diverted money from our local billboards, Chuck, because all we expected from your broadcast was to have uh, to keep our name in front of the public. And we did that. That was accomplished, and even in these first six months. But we never had someone come into our office and say, I like your billboard, I want to open up an account. They came in and said, I like your radio show, I want to open up an account. And so we were off and running. And uh, every year for three or four years, I would say, what do you think at at the end of this year? And uh, we're going, we're going. Finally, it was getting monotonous. And I said to them, I'll tell you what, 
anytime you would want to cancel or anytime I would need to discontinue, I says, how about if we give each other, I'm talking to the savings and loan now. Sure. We give each other six months notice. Great, That's fair. no problem. Mm-hmm. And they they stayed with me for years and years and years and years. You mentioned on your 23rd anniversary show in 1993 that you had never been on the air until 1970, but by 1974, you were the programming manager, the station manager. At that, at that, at that small station, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. They, well, the management changed. Uh, the, the station was, was sold, and the management was changing, and uh, it was bought by, the station was purchased by a, a, uh, a company that owned three or four radio, small, small uh, station, station, small size stations. And so they had a, a, they brought in a general manager, and he was happy to continue with the deal that I had going. And in fact, he said, "Well, let's do some other things. What else can we do with this radio?" So we started thinking about expanding the programming. And then he was going to get transferred to another one of the uh, small size stations that was owned by this company, and they were uh, seeking to find a general manager for the station. Mm-hmm. He called me into his office one day. He says, "Hey, do you know anybody who's who's in this station?" that would want to do that, you know, who would, might be available to run our station because I'm going to be transferred up to Minnesota or someplace. And now I've always been a fast thinker. <laughs> and I said, well, how about me? And he said, you? And I said, yeah. He said, well, have you ever managed a radio station? And I said, no, but I've managed a newspaper. I've managed a financial institution, a department in the financial institution. I've done other things. I've managed other things, and I know radio now because I've been here for three years already. And he said, well, you know, that's an idea. I never thought of that. He said, let me let me get back to you. And then he went and he talked to the guy who owned the station. They said, yeah, this is the guy. And so then he left, and I took over as the manager of the station. And uh, then I put a, a personal imprint on the station because all I was doing up at that time was was my, my one Saturday show, which was four hours every Saturday afternoon. And then I had just around that same time started a, a morning drive time program on the station, which was running from 7 till 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. The whole closet. In the early 70s, the morning drive didn't start at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> around 7 o'clock in sure. the Chicago area. So then I brought in some other people, and we worked with them, and I was uh, had I was doing some creative work as far as how, would, how do we get these people on the air and how do we... Uh, how do they get compensated for what they were doing and all that? Because the station had no money. They mm-hmm. didn't have any in the beginning. I never got paid by the. I got paid by the station when I became the general manager. But before that, I only I I, I found a few more sponsors than to my time, and then I was able to make a little bit of a profit off of all of that stuff. And so then it took off from that point, and then then ultimately the station was was going to be sold, and new management came in. After about five years, and they, as as in radio, then and now, when you get a new manager coming in, his 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 uh, his strength and his talents have to be served. And so, right. what he wants to do is to get to clean this, clear the slate, and do it. So we cleared the slate, and we were all all of us who had been on the station were out, and uh, there was tremendous listener response. Uh, to the fact that we were all leaving, and uh, and basically for the first time in all the five years I was on, we ended up having ratings on the station because it was such a small station in a big market. 
that uh, we never had much ratings or any ratings that we could even see. But um, we got into that. We got a lot of newspaper coverage, and I was able to land a spot on another radio station, a much more powerful station, a big FM station with a a downtown signal that carried our signal all through the area. And uh, uh, I got on that station, and and, uh, was it successful? Yeah, I stayed there for 25 years with that four-hour Saturday program. Pretty successful. When did you, because you mentioned that you finally drew a salary in some ways when you became station manager. So prior to that time, this was essentially a hobby that you were found a sponsor to pay for, and you were working, doing other things to earn a living in the meantime. Yeah, I still was with the newspaper. I was mm-hmm. with the newspaper. This was a, this was a, side, a little side thing that I was doing for for myself. But then I decided uh, I had I told you I had a couple of uh, uh, side yep. PR accounts, mm-hmm. and so then I uh, I asked the uh, I looked at the, the the numbers that I had going with all of this stuff, and I thought, could I could I survive without being in the newspaper anymore, without drawing a newspaper salary, and just do the radio and some side public relations work? And uh, with my wife helping me think it through, we uh, we said, well, it's a unilateral move financially, but let's see if we can't make something out of it. And she was a hundred percent behind me, and so. We did that. I left the full-time job. Uh, I started uh, revving up a little more enthusiasm for going out and finding some clients for the radio show, mm-hmm. and uh, did a couple of other things with the, with the PR work in, in that field, and was able to to continue. And then when I became the general manager of the station, I had the the deal that I had with them was a salary plus the time that I was selling in order to survive. Uh, on that little radio station became mine. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to buy that time anymore from the radio station. Right. So that was good. As Jackie Gleason said on television, in a way we can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The way that I do things with the Wall Breakers is that each month on the podcast, Breaking Walls and in general, there's a different theme. And March's theme is serendipity. And it's that's a, in some ways you've experienced a lot of that, but also what you just said to me, you sat down with your wife and you planned things out and you made a decision. Had you gone and decided that you didn't want to make this leap, chances are it would not have led you down the same path that you went down. For you, well, yeah, yeah. I, well, I was, you know, I was, I, I always figure I was at the, I was at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. But you know, opportunity knocks a lot for people, but people don't answer the door. Why do you think they that is? Re- Just they fear? They don't recognize it as an opportunity, or they're a little nervous, or they're a little shy. And I can understand that. When I, 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 was, I had worked, I said, I mentioned to you that I met worked full-time in a financial institution. Mm-hmm. I gave that up to go into the newspaper business. My father, who was a banker for many years, thought I was nuts. You give up a job in, in a financial institution to work for a little newspaper in the community? I said, but that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to do that stuff. Well, okay. But, and I could have done, I could have stayed there too in the long, long run. But I, but then I got involved in all the radio stuff, which I, which I loved. See, down under and secretly, in secret, I'm a ham actor. You know, I wanted, I'd like to do all of that stuff. And, uh, and over the years, I've, I've, I've had lots of a number of jobs in different fields, enough for enough for enough to know that whatever I was doing, I loved to do. I've enjoyed it. I gave it my all. 
I, I work in a bank and in the savings and loan and in the newspaper and whatever else. And wherever it was, whatever I was doing, I liked it until I got to it. If I got to a point where I didn't like it anymore, I looked for an alternative opportunity mm-hmm. in that job. And if I couldn't find one there, then I would move to something else to find that. I always had, I had two great things. I had confidence in what I was doing, and I had a wife who was confident in me too. Because, you know, a lot of people are, they have a a difficult situation, and I perfectly understand it. I want to do this, but the wife or the husband says, no, how can you do that? We can't, we've got a mouth to feed, we've got to we've got to do, we can't. And the reality sets in. And the struggle is there. And that was your but, father's fear also, right, in saying that you were crazy to leave this good job. Well, yeah. But he was a guy who had confidence in me, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was, I, I understood where he was coming from. But now I was not a kid anymore. I was an adult, and I had my life to go on. And, and I, I learned a lot from my dad in the job. He was a guy who was very confident in his stuff, and he loved the job he had. He was 43 years in one bank, and he grew up, he started as an errand boy, and he ended up being a vice president after all those years. And uh, so he was confident, and everybody knew him, and everybody liked him, and he he did a good job. And so I said, if he could do it, I could do it. And he was there always listening to me. He bought his first, he bought the first, when I went to, started doing some FM radio work, he bought, went out and bought us an FM radio, which was the greatest compliment I ever heard of in my life from my dad. Absolutely. And and, uh, and uh, he was uh, he listened on a Saturday afternoon. He'd sit in the living room and he had the radio on and he'd listen to me on the air. And and my mother'd say, "Well, he falls asleep sometimes." And I thought that was a big bit of confidence too, because he used to fall asleep listening to Lawrence Welk and Mitch Miller on the television. Ah. <laughs> so I was pretty good company to be in. You know? Right. Yeah. But I always tried to I tried to to do better to move ahead. I always felt that, you know, if someone says if the door open, closes here, another one opens. If the door is closed, the window's open. Some way, there's another spot. Don't give up the ship. Try to do it. But don't be so stubborn as to say, well, I've got to have this kind of a job, and I'm not going to do anything until I can find that type of a job. In some eras, you can do that, but in some eras, you can't do that, and you've got to take another job. Mm-hmm. I always said to myself, well, if I can't get another job in this thing, I can always I can always drive the bus. I can always drive the, the bus for the city. I never had to do that. I'd be terrified if I think about it. Now <laughs> I think about it, I would never want to drive a bus, not in this kind of traffic and all of that sort of thing. But I didn't. I never felt something was beneath me. Right. And I don't feel bus driving is beneath me. No. I, never, I, I would take a job to keep food on the table. I was a very lucky guy that I could do the, the job that I was doing that I loved for people who liked what I was doing, mm-hmm. kept food on our table. So, great. Well, I think it also, it sounds to me that your open-mindedness, like say I would take a job driving a bus, it's almost because of your open-mindedness that you never really had to do that because you were, like you're saying, you didn't have such tunnel vision that you closed your eyes to a bunch of different yeah. things. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you always secretly wanted to be you know, a radio actor. And in the 1970s, you, you kind of got an opportunity to do so with Fibber McGee and the good old days. I, well, yeah, I, actually, I, uh, actually, I wanted to be, I'd rather wanted to be an announcer than an actor. Okay. I never saw myself as being a, gra- a great actor or even a mediocre actor. But uh, 
uh, when we put together that Fibber McGee in the good old days of radio, it was the the concept of it was such that you needed somebody there who who knew about the uh, the history of the radio and all that sort right. of thing. Right. Exactly. And 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 I thought, well, I had a partner on that deal, and he said, well, you can do it, you can do it. And I said, well, okay. And we went and we started rehearsing with Jim Jordan, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought. I'm terrible at this. I can't do this thing. I said we've got to get somebody else, and I said maybe we can get maybe we can get the uh, Walter Tetley, who's who I think was still around at that time, who played uh, Leroy on the Gildersleeve program and mm-hmm. did many other things. I said we can put him in this. He could be the the young guy who comes to, to Fibber's house and all that. But even Jim Jordan said, "Not nah, Chuck. You're okay. You just take a little time to get out of this thing. You'll be to get it under your." under your skin a little bit you'll be okay and so i went and did it and i was self-conscious about it and uh, but i went ahead and i think it came off okay finally uh, i tried and it, it worked okay to do that and basically i i wrote the framework for all seven of those shows mm-hmm. putting all the the radio references in there but it didn't have the comedy that it needed I tried, but it didn't have the comedy. I mean, so that's when we got uh, Phil Leslie, who was one of the writers for the Fibber McGee and Molly radio show during the, the big era. And we asked him if he would, Jim Jordan put us in touch with Phil, and we asked him if he would be willing to do something like that. And he jumped at the chance. He was, we paid him and did okay by paying him that. And But he 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 was doing it primarily because he was, he had to do some of his writing chops again and all that. And so he, sure. he in fact, took my historical type scripts and fibberized them, we <laughs> used to say. And he put in all the comedy stuff and all of that sort of thing and everything. And, and in effect, I became Molly right. without being Molly. Right. I was, it was Fibber McGee and Chuck instead of Fibber McGee and Molly. Mm-hmm. But I got to say, taint funny McGee and, <laughs> and, and do things like that. Had the chance to work with a couple of other people who were on that program, like Gail Gordon and Hal Perry. It was a, a, a great adventure, and we had it. We we had a, the beautiful deal of it was we had a, a sponsor up front. It was the Chrysler Air Ten Corporation who who had whole house and and room air conditioning units that they were pitching, and it was on their for their 40th anniversary, and they wanted to do something big on radio. And so somebody from the agency came to me in Chicago and said, we want to do this, and we think we'd like to do something with old-time radio, and have you got any thoughts for us, or could we, you know, get them ideas? And so I gave him an idea, and I told him, uh, I had interviewed Jim Jordan before this, Mm -hmm. and I told him, uh, you know, you have to have a little uh, courage you know, in the movies, when they say to an actor, have you ever ridden a horse? The guy says, sure, I rode a horse. I can be in a Western. And then they sign him up, then he goes out and learns how to ride a horse. Yeah, I can get I can get Jim Jordan, and we got these shows, and we got all this stuff. I can do that. And then they said, well, great. So then I went out and got Jim Jordan. And uh, we put the thing together, and I, I'm, I'm very proud of it. It was a, it was a nice show we showed. We, we, we kind of added to the national... Uh, resurrection of the radio days in a little way, in a little way. Well, and also at that time, Elliot Lewis, he had relaunched a new radio show, right? He was doing five nights a week. And there it seemed in the mid-1970s, there was a, a genuine interest in reviving radio, at least the radio drama 
you know, the CBS right. Mystery Theater. But I also heard an interview with Elliot Lewis where he said that the problem was that he felt like he couldn't sell it at the time to sponsors. That there just wasn't enough interest in bringing people in long term as opposed to a short term thing. Do you believe now with the podcast era and where it's almost the Wild West in a way, I, you, I have an independent show in a sense. Do you think that there is a chance now for drama to be revived now over the air because people can download and listen whenever they like? Well, yeah, it is sure. Anything can anything can be done now because you can you can have the podcast and you can do it. You can do it, but you have to have marketing behind it. Right, exactly. Because you can do it, but if nobody pays attention to you, you're you're just you're doing it for yourself, and that may be enough. That sure. may be enough. But but if you if you if you can call some attention to it. I see newspaper columnists in, in the Chicago Tribune and other other papers, they all have podcasts now. Mm-hmm. And they, at the end of their column every day or whenever the column runs, they say, join us for our podcast here. So they're reaching all the readers of their column for another way to get their story across. And and so that that's part of the marketing of it. Mm-hmm. When I first went on that radio station in Evanston in 1970, it was one thing to have the have the sponsor, and it was another thing to be on the station. But how are we going to get people to come to it? Right. Because the station, it was not a 50,000-watt uh, CBS-owned and operated station. It was a little radio station. Sure. And and so we didn't have any – nobody had any money to promote things. The, the Savings and Loan put a little flyer into their uh, – or a little notice into their flyers once in a while that this program was on. But we had to do stuff. So I mentioned to you that I was a public relations kind of a guy. So I, mm-hmm. I started, I started doing speaking engagements. I talked to any group of three people or more who would have me for a Kiwanis lunch or something like that. <laughs> I'd do a show on old time radio and I'd talk about my program. I would, I would uh, get, uh, I'd, I'd have creative things on the on the radio show, or people could have creative things on their podcast now, and then some. I noticed to some columnist someplace, get your PR out there. You've got to market it. You've got to do that all over. And that's how you get the audience to it. Mm-hmm. So if a drama, if you have a group of people who are very talented and want to put on a, a new time radio show every every month or every week or whatever it is, and you're doing it on a podcast, that's fine. And they are all enthusiastic about doing it. And none of them are saying, I'm do it. I'm not doing it right now for the money. But if we get any bigger, certainly we'd like to, to be able to get some way to get some salary out of this sort of thing. You've got to market it so you can monetize it. Absolutely. And you can do it if you want to do it. And if you, uh, if you find the right people to help you do it, or if you're the right kind of person to do it, you can do it. Over all those years, I hated cold calling to get sponsors for my radio broadcast. I really hated to do cold calling. Is it just that it makes your skin crawl? It's, so, it's such an awkward thing to do? Yeah, but if the phone rings and someone says, hey, I heard your program and I'm interested in doing, uh, I'd like to know about the rates and the timing and this, all that stuff. I could see them and I could sell them mm-hmm. because the door opened for me and I was able right. to do it. But for me to knock on the door and say, how do you do? I'm so-and-so. I want to tell you about that. I'm not interested. I, can't. I knew that in the newspaper business. Mm-hmm. Same thing, you know. You got a jeweler down the street in your little neighborhood, and you say, hey, I would like to have an ad in our local newspaper. 
He says, nah, it's so slow, I don't have any business. He says, well, if you run an ad in the paper, you'll it might develop the business. No, nah, I can't do it. He says, I can't. So then you come back around the Christmas time, and you say, well, this is the time to advertise because everybody wants jewelry now for Christmas. He says, I don't have to advertise because they come to my door anyway. This is the time of the year I sell all this stuff. So it's catch twenty two. You can't you can't sell them. That's the hard sell stuff, and I don't want to do that. I mm-hmm. always didn't like that. But I've had over those all those thirty nine years of my broadcast, I've always gotten the sponsors myself, one way or another, through uh, relationships, through people calling me. And I even get on the air and say, if you would like to be an underwriter for this program, if you would like, we have an opening for a sponsor or two. Well, come let us in. And people would call. And then I would always visit them and see what they had to offer. Because in my mind, if I gave a commercial for anybody, it is almost like an endorsement of the product or the service. Right. Because that's the rapport that I happened that I personally happen to have had with the audience. The audience if I talked about such and such an automobile dealer, the audience would say that's Chuck telling me about that dealer. He must know something about that. And they and trusted you. That's right. I hope I hoped I had and I could earn that trust. And I did by not having somebody. I've turned down people. I've turned down people who wanted to do something, and uh, because I didn't, I didn't care for the product, or I didn't think I didn't. Frankly, I didn't think the product matched what we were doing. Right. If you've listened to some of the things that we've done, you've heard some of those commercials mm-hmm. that we did for Northwest Federal Savings which, with all the different parodies of the radio shows and mm-hmm. things like that. We tailor-made it all to that sort of thing. There's a lot of different elements to all of it, but you've got to keep a positive mind on it all. You've, and you've got to like what you're doing so much that you don't want to do anything else. Right. So you do what it takes to keep this thing going. Well, and I think that's partly why you probably always had a positive mind towards it. A lot of what you're saying is don't be afraid to put yourself out there and make genuine connections with as many people as you'd like because that's how you're going to be able to get things done that you want to do, basically. Exactly right. You went to California often to interview a lot of these actors and actresses Mm -hmm. because they had moved to California to work and then stayed there. There's a specific trip that I happened to just be listening to different interviews that you were doing, but they all happened to be... In August of 1976, you interviewed Arch Obler, Betty Lou Gerson at the Brown Derby, Alice Frost, Dennis Day, etc. And I was just curious, that particular trip, you brought your wife with you to California, but what was the logistics of not, you know, let's say you went for a week, 10 days, etc., but being able to line up that many people all at the same time, how did you go about doing that? And did things change, you know, basically? Well, you know, you make connections. Rarely was it planned in advance. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. If if I'm in Chicago and I called Howard Duff, and who was Sam Spade on radio, right. and said, I'm going to be out there in 10 days, and I'd like to be able to uh, sit down with you and talk about uh, the radio days and st- your career. And and I wanted to, what I wanted to do was to say, well, I'm going to be out there from the 15th to the 25th of the month, and I'd like to go in the 20th. And he would say, well, when you get out here, call me. Right. Okay. So at least I had that. <laughs> right. I had his name and a phone number, which I had anyway, but I could call him. So I couldn't book anybody until I got out there because nobody wanted to, to do it until I got out there. 
I suppose they've had lots of people call, and then you make a date, and then nobody shows up. Sure. And then, and so I, I say, well, let's go. We're gonna we're gonna try to do this, and let's let's see if we can't if we can get maybe one interview a day during the week, mm-hmm. Monday through Friday. Because I brought my wife with. If I went in '76, that was our 20th wedding anniversary. Mm. <laughs> so I said, hey, I'm gonna take you to California for our <laughs> wedding anniversary. And in the meantime. You could. I'm going to take you into this guy's home and that person's place and all that. And so my wife went with me, and we had a wonderful time. And they were always happy to see two of us, even one was the one was just doing the interview. Sure. So I would call, and in some cases, for example, I mentioned Howard Duff. Right. I, I, I talked with him, and at the end of our conversation, he said, "Well, who else are you going to talk to when you're out here?" And I'd mentioned one or two other names. I said, "But you know who I really want to try to get, and I haven't. I don't know where to find him." And I, I says, it's Elliot Lewis. He says, oh, Elliot, yeah. I, well, wait a minute. Then he reaches and he gets his telephone directory out of his book. Not a directory, but his phone book. Flips a few pages. Oh, Elliot, he's over at Paramount now. Well, here's his phone number. Just give him a call over there. Tell right. him how he sent him. Sure. Well, they were friends, so that you know that's yeah, the connection. Right, right. So then when I, I, I got back from the interview, I called uh, Elliot Lewis over there, and I said, I got your phone number from Howard Duff. He said, oh, how is Howie? I haven't talked to him for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And then he said, I want you to, you know, I said, can I do an interview? I said, do a couple. He said, yeah, I'm on the Paramount lot. So I went to, through the Paramount gates and went into the, to, to the Cecil B. DeMille building and sat in him as he talked about his career on Jack Benny program and on the other radio shows, Phil Harris and Alice Faye and others. So that's how you get those interviews. But we could have come back empty-handed. But you make contacts as you're out there and things like that. And, right. And over the years, by 1976, I had done a couple of years of interviews and things, so I knew somebody here or there. And I would call, and I'd say, can you get me a, a connection with this person or that person? And I, I don't think I ever set up an interview in advance. I always had to wait till I got there. And then you'd make a date. Sometimes the date was later that day. Sometimes it was two days later. And then I would always call them ahead of time, the morning of the interview or something like that, and say, I'm just confirming I'll be there at 2 o'clock or whatever the time was. Sure. Sometimes we did. We would do three interviews in a day. I'd do an interview at 10.30 in the morning. I'd do another one at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, another at 3.30 or 4. But I never rushed anybody. And I always told them that this was going to be a lengthy interview if it turned out that way and we were going to play it intact. I was not going to chop it up. It's not going to be a two and a half minute sound bite. Mm-hmm. And they were okay, okay. And many of them would say, Yeah, all right, we'll do this and uh, it was I knew they were thinking well, I'll do it, but I don't think there's going to be much to this. But, but as soon as they saw how much you loved the genre, then they opened right yeah. up. Yeah, that's true. And many of them, I'm very pleased to say that many of them, many of these folks said, gee, you've really done your homework, or you know a lot. How do you know so much about all this stuff? And I remember I was a younger guy at those days, too, and so they always, they were amazed. That I went. But I still grew up with the radio days. I knew the shows, and I had done my research, and my research was... You know, my parents used to say to me, Chuck, turn that radio off. You're supposed to be doing your homework. But I was really doing my homework while mm-hmm. I was listening to the radio. Right. But I didn't know it because that's where I was learning about all those shows. Yep. 
So much I don't know if that answered your question. No, it did. And it's funny because we were talking a couple of minutes ago about your listeners when you were on the air, trusting that if you had a sponsor, that they trusted you, so therefore they could trust the sponsor. And so much of that is similar to, say, Howard Duff calling Elliot Lewis on your behalf, making those contacts. And Elliot Lewis trusted Howard Duff, so therefore he would take a meeting with you, right. basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, come to think of it, I, I did an awful lot of those interviews in the homes of those people. Right. You know, I make a phone call. I'm in, I'm in town from Chicago. I'm with this radio station. I'm going to do this. And, and I would always say, uh, last time I was out, I interviewed this person or that person. Or earlier this week, I, uh, I interviewed so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, I'm presuming that a lot of these people knew one another. Right. And uh, though they never mentioned it to me, I would presume that somebody would call just to corroborate people whose names I mentioned. What about this guy? Who is this guy? Right. And, mm -hmm. and because I would go up to the door either by myself or with my wife, or sometimes I was out with, a, with a, another friend and we'd be standing there at the door. I had to strap around my shoulder with the tape recorder and the doorbell would ring and they'd come in, come in, come back here, sit down. Mm -hmm. We sat down with the, uh, all kinds of people. Dennis Day in his home. Yep. In his home. Mm -hmm. and, and because they were in their home, they were already comfortable. You were going to them. It was where they were most comfortable. And yeah, right. They weren't on the spot. And then, and, and if you, in the beginning, I used a real, a real, a real tape recorder and a single microphone. We, I held it. We sat between. We had the microphone in my hand between the two of us, and I'd move it back and forth. Later on, when I was recording these interviews on cassette tape, on a very good cassette tape recorder, with a couple of really good microphones, we used a clip-on mic, and right. I wasn't holding a mic anymore. And nobody, everybody forgets about the mic then when it's on, and they were sitting across the room from one another. The, the subject is on the sofa, maybe, and, and I'm on a, on a chair across from him, and we're just sitting there conversing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like a radio interview. No. And I hope that would come out in the uh, in, on the tape when you heard the interviews. You know, that, you know. And sometimes we were in a room where there's a grandfather's clock is chiming the hour, or mm -hmm. some other sounds are going on, and we're out in a, in a lanai behind somebody's house, and down the block somebody is mowing along. Or is going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Arch Obler's dog starts barking when the postman comes when you're sitting. Yeah. Talking. Right. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And you know, it's funny too because, for one, these interviews that you were doing, they're not interviews. They are, but they're conversations. It's just you and a guy having, or a woman having a conversation. But yeah. I think also things like Arch Oldler's dog barking when the postman comes, it creates an element of timelessness to it that, let's say, 45 years later, I sitting down listening to it, it just, it still feels like two guys, as if I'm there myself listening to it. And yeah. I think that's a mark of when something is right. Well, I hope that. And when the interview played on my program for the first time, mm -hmm. in some some cases I would repeat it again, but uh, when it played on my program the first time, it was always very fresh in my mind, and I would set the scene for my listening audience. I would say we were in California. We went to Studio City, uh, which is near Warner Brothers and all there. And then we went to this small house where Arch Obler lived. And I would describe the house. I would say something about what I saw in his living room. And we sat there 
and we talked about it. So they got the scene. So I say, now I want to bring you into Art Sobler's living room. Right. And I asked, I said, and then I played the tape. And then I always, the first time, always played the tape uninterrupted. If it was a 42-minute interview, I played it uninterrupted because I had a four-hour radio show. Sure. I was in total control of. I didn't have to break for news or weather. Initially, I did, but later on, I didn't have to. We could go for 42 minutes. And then after we played the radio show, I, uh, we played the interview, I play a radio show. Mm-hmm. written by Arch Obler or whoever I was interviewing. And it's like in a lot of ways you were basically, you're talking about radio as a theater of the mind, theater of the imagination. You were activating people's imaginations. Perhaps they had no previous contact until that day with Arch Obler, with any kind of golden age of radio shows, and you were able to paint that picture for them. That's right. Perhaps only the only thing they ever knew about Arch Obler was that they may have heard some of the Lights Out programs on my show before that. Or 30 years before. You know, it's funny. I, until this week, I never realized that the very famous Chase and Sanborn hour with uh, Mae West and Charlie McCarthy in bed that caused a giant uproar. I didn't realize until this week that Arch Obler actually wrote that script. That's correct, right? Yes, right. right. And I thought after hearing an interview with him that you did, it would make sense to me that he would be the kind of guy who would have written that script in the first place. And it made me laugh when I I thought about that. (laughs) One one of my favorite moments, you were talking with Alan Reed, and for anybody who doesn't know, he's the voice of Fred Flintstone or Sally Tomato in Breakfast at Tiffany's. did so many radio parts, but he talked about how uh, when he went for his first interview and and he wanted to be casted, uh, the only part was for a heavy, and they felt like he was too young. And he left the room and waited for the secretary to leave and made a call basically as if he was a gangster threatening the guy to give him a job and it worked basically and I, I thought that was so great <laughs> to hear him say so, hear him say that yeah see when you get when you do an interview that runs 30 minutes or 35 or 40 minutes you get the stories and that's that's important those the anecdotes the things that are not on your card to ask a question about mm-hmm. and that's that's real important and I learned really very early in the game I may have uh, jotted down a few questions that I want to ask but the most important thing to do is to listen and ask a question about something they just said that may not have anything to do with what you've got on your card because that's where the interest is going to come. Sure, absolutely. And by the way, thank you because I'm learning how to do these things just by talking to you, a veteran today. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm curious about one thing, too. You were talking with Don Wilson in 1980, Don Wilson, Jack Benny's announcer, and you were reflecting on the differences in program sponsorship from the golden age of radio until 1980. And along those lines, a lot of the actors and actresses that you spoke to, and this is from the 70s and 80s, they didn't like what they felt like was television was doing to an American audience or an American child. And But also, you were mentioning that at one time, you know, like you said, the Lux Radio Theater or the Chase and Sanborn Hour, these major sponsors were holding on to the programs for themselves, and then at some point the networks were able to wrestle them away. Did that really make things better? Are we in a better state today with podcasting, bringing those things back? How do you see things playing out? Because you were talking about getting sponsorship and things like that. Where do you think we go from here in terms of television and radio into the future? Well, there's always gonna, I think there's always going to be radio, there's always going to be television, and there will probably always be the Internet and podcasting and things like that. It is what we make of it. And uh, uh, 
the fewer people who have their hands in the pot, the better the pot's going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's why when, when the, you know, the Jack Benny program was sponsored by Lucky Strike or Jello, and they had uh, uh, the agency, the program was produced by the agency for the network. The network didn't have much to do with it. Right. And then, and then, uh, and television, uh, the sponsors couldn't afford the cost of a whole program. So mm-hmm. they would, they would share, first of all, they shared sponsorship. And then eventually they relinquished any kind of sponsorship to the networks. The networks sold the programs and owned the programs and sold participation in it. So you would just buy spot announcements in these programs. So the sponsor then didn't have all, the only interest the sponsor had then was in the numbers that they would get. If they could get a rating of such and such, that's all they wanted. They really didn't care much about the content of the program unless there was something offensive in there that would reflect on everybody who had a a spot announcement in it. But in the old days, if uh, Jack Armstrong on radio, which is a kids' adventure show, was sponsored by Wheaties, the breakfast cereal, uh, they didn't give a darn about the ratings for that kids' show. What they gave a darn about was how many boxes of Wheaties were we selling. Mm-hmm. And then they would offer a Jack Armstrong uh, uh, secret decoder or something like that. And if those secret decoders resulted in box tops being sent in and box tops resulted in Wheaties being sold, that's what the sponsor wanted. He didn't care what the numbers were. He didn't care if Captain Midnight had more listeners than, than Jack Armstrong. What was Jack Armstrong doing? He wanted that. And same thing with most of the radio shows. They were happy to have the numbers. They were glad to get the numbers. The audiences were there. But the sponsors were individual sponsors. That's why those sponsors for programs lasted years. You know, Johnson's Wax sponsored Fibber McGee and Molly, and that Mm -hmm. lasted from 1935 all the way to 49 or 50. Long time. Which do you think is better? Which approach? The ratings approach or, you know, how many how many boxes of Wheaties are we selling? Because things are so... Uh, ratings dictate everything today. And you don't see, let's say, like an, a radio show like Escape, which never really had a sponsor except for a very short amount of time. But some of the writing was so wonderful, I think, because nobody was really looking at it. So you're getting, you know, people are getting the opportunity to really improve the medium. But, but which do you think is better? Which approach? Well, I always I thought that the single sponsorship of a program was better. Mm-hmm. I thought because you didn't have to f- uh, please ninety two people. Right. All you had to do was please one person. Right. And uh, he was the end all. He was the answer to it all. If he didn't like you, you were through. But that was another story. But you didn't have to. He he didn't he didn't live or die on the numbers. He lived or died on what what was this program doing for us? That everybody identified. Johnson's Wax with Fibber McGee and Molly. So that's it. Sure. That's a better way to do it. But uh, it's not the only way to do it, and everybody, everything has to have its own way. I mean, you if you had a single sponsor for your podcast, wouldn't you be happier to have that single sponsor than to have 10 sponsors? Right. Too many chiefs then. Well, too many chiefs and too much interruption. Sure. You don't, you don't, need, to, you don't need your podcast interrupted 10 times. Because a single sponsor would have such a nice identifying uh, basis with the program that he he would be known throughout the whole thing. See, right. And uh, uh, now maybe you would you might 
translate more money, more monetary uh, results to the podcast because you had a dozen sponsors in there. But you got to work hard to get those dozen sponsors, and there's always somebody leaving. Now you feel you have to fill a, that slot with another sponsor. Now you got to go out and try to find somebody else again. So it's hard. To, it's hard to do that. Right, and then and then at some point you're no longer even able to focus on the content that you're producing because you're spending so that's much right. time keeping sponsors. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and I don't know about you, but I'm I'm doing a podcast now. You are. That's once a month, and mm-hmm. it's, I'm very happy doing it. It's a retirement project. Basically, on the podcast, I only refer to my website. Mm-hmm. Because speaking the of website, radio? The, the, speakingofradio.com. Yeah. That's correct. That has all my interviews on it. It has a great library of an archive of all the shows that I had done and a lot more. And so if you're listening to the podcast, I say it's brought to you by speakingofradio.com, mm-hmm. and that's where you'll find this or that's where you'll find that. And that the podcast, in my mind, is a vehicle to to entertain. It's a vehicle for me to have a retirement project, and it also directs people to the website, which is was many years in the making, and it's 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 it still continues to move along, but it doesn't uh, uh, it require as lot of attention as it used to. So, so that's the way it uh, it has worked uh, over over the years. And that and that's that's fine. So uh, the podcast is um, Chuck Shaden's Memory Lane, mm-hmm. and there's a new one come out about the first of every month. And uh, there's also I, the I, Facebook I, group, I, Chuck Shaden's yeah, Memory well, Lane Facebook a, yeah, group. Yeah, there's a Facebook group. Yeah, it, speaking at the Facebook group is Chuck Shaden's Memory Lane. Yep. And and that's all I call that all things nostalgic. We put stuff on there. And so here I am again. I'm I'm a, I'm a producer. I'm 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 doing Facebook stuff. Uh, I was very reluctant to get into Facebook. I just didn't need that. I had too many other things to do. And then someone said the podcast would be nice to have. And then you should use the Facebook because you can drop people to the podcast. Hence, you can drop people to the. If they like what you're doing, they'll go to the website too. So it comes in there. And I'm having a good time with with Facebook. I'm not I'm not really excited about. Uh, people who send me a, and this doesn't happen on my on my group, but I'm not too happy when someone tells me what they had for dinner last night. Right. But if someone says I, I say Mary Tyler Moore died, and uh, you know I'm, I'm I'd like to post this scene from the from the Dick Van Dyke show, mm-hmm. and that's great. So you go to that you go to the the podcast group, uh, Chuck Shaden's Memory Lane, and then you find all kinds of show business memories and nostalgia like that. And one thing that I noticed, like you said, is that you allow people to post, and you're basically the conduit for everybody else in that case. That's right. And I love it when someone participates. People say they like this, that's fine, and and, and then they they have a comment. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, and I heard somebody say, Chuck, I missed you, and you replied, I haven't gone anywhere, I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, People come and go, and, and uh, it's it's an entertaining thing, and it's it's a it's a pleasant. You know, nostalgia is a nice place to visit. You don't want to live there, mm-hmm. but it's a nice place to visit. Sure, and I that's agree what that. I've always felt about the radio programs and all of that. I love the past, but I don't want to live there. I, I'm happy in the present, but I get a great joy and comfort out of the past. And sometimes there are things happening in the present that just are too much, <laughs> and you can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you say, let's 
shut off the television today. Let's shut off this stuff and have a little requiem for the past here, a little bit like that. Sure. And, you know, Chuck, based on years and years of photos of you and, and television programs, it seems like you've always looked healthy, you've always looked happy, and I think that's because you've been had the confidence to, to try to do what you want in life. And it's it's a good visual and emotional lesson for anybody else who might think that they don't have the ability to do something when deep down they do. Well, it's a lesson I've learned, and I hope others would learn that lesson too. James, I appreciate the chance to have this chat with you today, and I wish you the best with your podcast and your various interests. Thank you so and much, the old, Chuck. The old clock on the wall says I got to go. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chuck. Thanks, James. Thank Take you. Absolutely. Right. Take care. Chuck, thank you again for giving me an hour of your time. I could have spoken to you for 11 hours and only scratched the surface. The confidence with which Chuck has lived his life is translatable to all of us. We've all got passions. Let's follow them. They'll lead to serendipity. As Chuck mentioned, if you'd like to see, read, and hear more about Chuck's life and career, please do so at speakingofradio.com. Chuck's monthly podcast can be found on iTunes, by searching for Chuck Shaden, that's S-C-H-A-D-E-N, or in the podcast tab at speakingofradio.com. I will include, by the way, all of these links, as well as Chuck's adjoining Facebook group, in this show's description. If you're wondering why it's been a month since the last Breaking Walls release, well, <laughs> I can explain that in two words, flu and laryngitis. Although spring is right around the corner, we must remember that March comes in like a lion before going out like a lamb. Perhaps you're still heating your home with blue coal, like Chuck's family might have been on that seventh day of December in 1941. But no matter what, make sure you bundle up and stay warm. Now, why is March's theme serendipity? The core theme in this month is taken from St. Patrick's Day, which means you'll hear from me again in two weeks when I present a history of St. Patrick's Day on the air during the Golden Age of Radio. It'll feature moments from Bill Stern's sports newsreel, great clips from Beat the Band, which in 1940 still featured Perry Como, Dennis Day's 1946 return to the Jack Benny program after his honorable discharge from the Navy, as well as other moments that were on the air each March 17th in those days of yesteryear. Until that time, you can reach me at james at thewallbreakers.com. Please reach out to me with any questions, comments, concerns, or compliments. I always try to be receptive to all inquiries. And as we're bundling up and venturing out into the world this March, remember to keep putting yourself out there and making your passions known. Chuck has spent a lifetime doing this, and his happiness is a testament to the success of this approach. So keep getting out there, guys. Keep breaking those walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 52. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.